1: Hi, I'm Murray Walker, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. It was with
0: great sadness that the world learnt of the death of Murray Walker on Saturday the 13th of March 2021 at the age of 97. To millions of Formula One fans around the world, Murray was much more than a Formula One commentator – He was the man that brought their passion to life, with his unmistakable voice soundtracking some of the greatest moments in the sport's history.
1: Third light, fourth light, fifth light, action, and Spielner's lost it, incredible, my goodness, the third leader in two laps, oh my
0: goodness, I have never seen that before. This
1: is the opportunity that Senna's looking for, and he's going to Oh my goodness, this is fantastic! This is what we were fearing might happen during the race! Damon Hill wins the Japanese Grand Prix and I've got to stop because I've got a lump in my throat!
0: In early 2019, I had the privilege of visiting Murray at home in the New Forest for the special 1000th race episode of this podcast. Ever gracious with his time, Murray was a delight as he regaled me with his incredible life story from the battlefields of World War II to Formula One commentary boxes across the globe. So it only seemed fitting that in tribute to Murray, a man who meant so much to so many, we repost that conversation for you. So here you are, the great Murray Walker, in his own words. Well, Murray, welcome to be on the Grid. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, first of all, how are you?
1: I'm all right, Tom. Uh, I'm old and doddery and uh, I've got things wrong with me that old people get, but basically I'm OK. Firing on. Five cylinders, anyway. <laughs> five out of out of ten. Oh, yeah, five Five out of six.
0: <laughs> well, Murray, you look great, and it's such a pleasure to come here to your uh, home to have a chat. And Now, listen, are you a podcast fan?
1: Tom, I paused because I was just racking my brains to find the right answer. I don't really know what a podcast is. I don't think I've ever consciously listened to one, and to the extent that I have, I just assumed it was a sort of... Uh, extended radio interview which is what it is isn't it
0: that's exactly what we're embarking on right yeah, here right. now murray um how up to speed are you with modern day current 2019 formula one
1: well i like to think i'm right or, or almost right up to speed not nearly as up to speed as i was tom when you and i worked together because uh, well I'm, I'm not part of it now and as you know When you're part of it, you're talking to people all the time from different walks of life, team principals, drivers, sponsors, everybody you can think of about nothing else but Formula One. And to you and to me at that time, there wasn't anything else other than Formula One because you live in a sort of bubble and nothing else matters, Brexit and things like that. Let's Um, not go down that route, Murray. No, we're not going down the (laughs) Brexit route, I promise you. Uh, So I'm I'm out of it, but to the extent that I'm out of it, I've tried to keep up as much as I can. Uh, I watch television, I read papers, I read magazines and I talk to people. So I'm fairly up to speed. Did you watch the Bahrain Grand Prix? I watched every second of the Bahrain Grand Prix, yeah. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I felt so, so sorry for Leclerc because to come into Formula One as he has and get into Ferrari as he has and to lead the race as he was doing so close to the end and have something happen to him was, I I hesitate to use the word tragic, but it was very sad. The BBC always used to say to me, Tom, you mustn't use the words tragic and you mustn't use the word disaster. They said, it's it's not a disaster if somebody retires from Formula One. It's not tragic if somebody's engine blows up. It's tragic if 50 people are killed in an earthquake in Japan or something like that. But even taking that into account, I think it's almost tragic that Lecaire had the problem that he had. He's a very impressive
0: young man. He's only 21 and he... You know, he said all the right things after the race, um, he, you know, and he did, let's, let's face it, he blew, Tom, he blew Vettel away at the weekend.
1: Yeah, and, he, and, he's, and he's talking in a foreign language.
0: He speaks plenty of them. I think it's Italian, French, English. Yeah,
1: I'm consumed with admiration and respect for anybody that can do that. And Murray, uh, did you know that Leclerc's mother is David
0: Coulthard's hairdresser?
1: No, really? (laughs) How does that happen? (laughs) In Monaco, I suppose. Monaco, yes. yes. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yes. (laughs) Next time you see David on the telly and you think his hair's looking great, you know where it came from. (laughs) Now, Murray, let's talk um, a little bit about you and your career, first of all. Was F1 a hobby or a job for you?
1: Tom, uh, I actually started talking about what today is Formula One before Formula One existed in 1949, if you can think back that far. You, you probably your mother's told you about it. <laughs> uh, a little bit before my time. When Baron Tulo de Graffenreide <laughs> won the British yes. Grand Prix in a Maserati. Um, I, you, you have to take into, into account the fact that I was born into a motorsport atmosphere because my father was a very successful professional racing motorcyclist and he raced from before I was born until I was 12 years old so I was either going to love motorsport or loathe it and I I loved it and and still do and the answer to your question is uh, uh, Formula One is almost a passion with me uh, always has been. Not to the extent that motorcycle racing is, I have to um, tell you, rather traitorously tell you. Um, but uh, it's very, very special.
0: Did you ever want to race yourself?
1: Tom, I'm surprised that you're asking a well, question Well, I, like I know that, you did do I Because I did actually race motorcycles. I did know that. And I retired at the height of my success after I had won... A two fifty cc heat uh, at Brands Hatch when when Brands Hatch was a grass track, which ran anti-clockwise, and that was the time when John Surtees was a youngster racing with his father Jack, and Jack Jack rode the bike and John Surtees rode in the sidecar, um, and then I then I took up. Um, enduros on motorcycles, six-day motorcycle events. Where and did I, they take
0: place? Pardon. Where did they take place? These enduros in in the UK? Or? Uh,
1: yeah, the, the, I rode in the International Six Days Trial in Llandrindod Wells. It was based, and you, we, we went charging about all over Wales. Uh, and the Scottish Six Days Trial, I rode in that. I was, uh, got awards in both of them. And I was fairly reasonable, Tom. I was fair to good club standard. But I knew that I was never going to be as good as my father. I I, I started off with delusions of grandeur that I was really going to show the old man how a motorcycle ought to be ridden. And I very rapidly discovered that I wasn't. Uh, And you know what they say, those that can do and those that can't talk about it. So I started talking about it. Uh, in 1949 got an audition at Goodwood uh, and talked about the Parnell Reg Parnell winning a heat, a heat there in his Maserati uh, and then it all grew like Topsy but I had a full time job in the advertising business if if as I'm sure you do you know that PAL dog food prolongs active life P-A-L prolongs active life Was- uh, if, if you, you coin know, that. If you know that your cat lives long, st- <laughs> stays and lives longer on daily kitty cat. Uh, if you know that opal fruits are made to make your mouth water.
0: Does a Mars a day help you work,
1: rest uh, and that play? Was, that was, was, that was that not- uh, I, I was the, the account executive on the, and the account director on the Mars business. But I didn't actually think of that. I wish I had. But Trill makes budgies bounce with health. How does that grab you? <laughs>
0: All of the. All <laughs> a long mark. <laughs> well, look, I want to come on to your ad career, but but did you miss the bikes when you stopped? Did you miss the adrenaline, the, the, the um, competitive
1: side of it? When I stopped racing, uh, no, not really, because uh, well, you know, Tom, if you're beh- behind a microphone, you get a lot of adrenaline flowing, and and if you are talking to literally millions of people as I was in the BBC days, and the BBC was the sole broadcaster. It's very different now. There's umpteen different organisations broadcasting Formula One, one way or another. But when I started off, and for quite a long time, the BBC was the only Formula One broadcaster. So if you were going to listen to it, you listened to me, because you hadn't got the option. Uh, So when I stopped riding bikes... I stopped because I really knew I wasn't good enough to get to the top, which was what I wanted.
0: Did you worry about the dangers of bike racing?
1: No. You, well, you, do, you don't, do you? You, you? It's something that happens to other people. It doesn't happen to you. Uh, and I didn't really do it long enough or at a high enough level to start thinking like that. So then
0: the ad world beckons. Um, a lot of people listening to this, I think, think that, commentating was your job but actually
1: well, it's my hobby <laughs> exactly yeah, it's my the, hobby the job yeah. the nine
0: to five is yeah, what nine to, just five, described.
1: nine to five well nine to not much more than nine to five Because in the agency business you you lose a lot of business so you inevitably have to replace it with new business so I was doing a lot of new business presentations as well as working on my own accounts and that meant weekend work uh, but um It was the the motor, what we now call motor motocross scrambling, that um, really really got me going, because I'd been doing a lot of stuff on radio for BBC and public address, and then RTV came to me and said they wanted me to work on scrambling as it was then called, Uh, and it it took off like a rocket. So when did the?
0: I mean, you, you've said already that you know 1940s. Yes, 1949. Yeah, well, I had but- been
1: doing. I had been doing a lot of stuff like the British Touring Car Championship, Formula Ford, Formula Three. Uh, BBC wasn't doing any or hardly any Formula One coverage. They would do Monaco. They would do the British Grand Prix and the Italian Grand Prix, and that was about it. Uh, and then in 1976, a chap called James Hunt uh, won, won the championship and Britain suddenly became aware of Formula One because of the glamorous image, the playboy image, the devil-may-care image that, that James Hunt had. Uh, and the BBC decided they were going to do Formula One and at that time their natural commentator was Raymond Baxter and Raymond Baxter couldn't do it because, for a variety of reasons I won't bore you with. And they asked me to do it. And that was 1978, the Mario and Andretti-Ronnie Peterson year. Uh, and then it just grew from that. And I carry, I carried on doing the job and the broadcasting for four years until 1982. And then in 1982, I was 60 years old. I retired from the advertising business and my career broadcasting career started at the age of 60 at the age of 60 yes
0: extraordinary now you had lots of people in the commentary box with you but there were two legendary partnerships weren't there there was James Hunt and Martin Brundle let's talk about James first you know tell us about why that worked and what it was
1: like to work with James difficult to know where to start with James because he was A unique character, Tom. Uh, He didn't care about what anybody thought. Uh, He was an extrovert. He was a showman. Uh, He drank too much. He smoked too much. He womanized like there was no tomorrow. Uh, Sounds like you're uh, very similar. (laughs) (laughs) He, he could be the most arrogant, overbearing, objectionable person you've ever met in your life, and frequently was. But all the time, there was a really decent, cheerful, friendly, nice person hiding inside. And when he retired from broadcasting, um, the uh, nice chap took over. Sorry, when he retired from racing, the nice chap took over. Uh, but I had some very difficult times with James. I had some very good times with James. Uh, what would you trigger- i tell you what he was like. He, I used to you rush about the paddock all the time, beavering away, talking to people, talking intensely to drivers, to... Principles, principals to tire technicians to anybody who would talk to me about anything to do with Formula One, in the hope that some of it would stick for the commentary. While James would languidly sit in the Marlborough motorhome, and everybody went to him. Uh, and I would get to the commentary box an hour before the race began. James would get to the commentary box maybe maybe five minutes before the race began. And to wind me up, he would often say, who's in poor position, Murray? Uh, and uh, I used to stand up to commentate, literally on the balls of my feet with adrenaline pouring out of me by the bucket floor. James would sit in a sort of uh, sullen heap beside me and gesture for the microphone when he wanted it, or I would give it to him when I wanted him to say something. Uh, and there were times when he hadn't really got very much to say, but when he had got something to say, it was really worth listening to. Why did it work? I was old enough to be his father, Tom, Um, and as you will gather, uh, James did a lot of things and said a lot of things that I didn't approve of, and vice versa probably. Um, But I think it was probably partly because of that um, because we grew to be tolerant of each other, I used to want the microphone. I was so excited and wanting to impart everything that I had learned and was watching that I really didn't want anybody else in the in the box with me. I didn't really want James Hunt. I was quite happy to do it all by myself. So James had that aspect to put up with. Uh, I had other aspects to put up with. Uh, James was incredibly outspoken. The trouble with Jarrier, is a French wally, always has been and always will be. Uh, and he uh, used, used to say the most outrageous things and, and get away with it. And the public loved him. And on one occasion, uh, he didn't turn up at all, the Belgian Grand Prix one year. And uh, we were frantically getting retired drivers to come to the commentary box to talk to me about what it was like. James formed up afterwards and said he was sorry he hadn't been there but he was in bed with a stomach complaint uh, it was the first time I'd ever heard two Belgian nurses called a stomach complaint <laughs> <laughs> would you say that's that but that was James that's, that sounds
0: <laughs> very true to form from what yeah. I've heard about him but would you say you were friends
1: by the end yeah oh definitely, definitely. by the end yeah. we were yeah. uh not really. At the beginning, we were um, reluctant partners, from my point of view. Um, James ob- ob- obviously wanted to do it, um, but no, no, we we were all right at the end. And what impact did his? We death? were all right at the end, provided. Oh dear, this is going to sound very arrogant. Um, Provided I was tolerant enough to put up with some of James's excesses. Uh, and some of James's excesses were really excessive. Um, and he, he had the most fearsome temper. God, he frightened the life out of anybody when he was having one of his tirades. But there you go. It, the important thing is, Tom, that it worked from the public point of view. And I suspect that it was the contrast of personalities. My talking like my trousers were on fire, as Clive James used to say, and uh, James, the relaxed public school uh, expert, because he had been there and done it at the highest level. What impact did his
0: death have on you personally?
1: Well, it obviously had an enormous impact because I'd been working with him for 13 years, 16 times a year, four days at a time. And if you multiply 16 by... 13 by 4, you get a very big number. So uh, I literally missed, greatly missed the partnership. James was replaced with Jonathan Palmer, who did an excellent job. Um, But then ITV took over, and Martin Brundle had come in at Mark Wilkin, the producer's behest, at several of the broadcasts one year, And shown himself to be very good. So ITV then used him. um, And he was the best bloke I ever worked with by a long chalk. Why? Because he's a nice person. Because he's predictable. Because he's got a good sense of humor. Because he's been there and done that at the highest possible level. World sports car champion. Winner of Le Mans. uh, Drove for eight Formula One teams finished on every step of the podium except first, beaten had beaten Schumacher. And he was one of those rare individuals, a, a, a top sportsman, top of his craft, who could actually talk entertainingly and interestingly about it, as he still does, bless him.
0: He Does and the grid walk, of course, was something that yes, he started, wasn't it?
1: No, it isn't, it's the grid walk, Murray Walker started. When did you first spare you your embarrassment? <laughs> yes, I'm <of>. <laughs> Murray. but when it, did hap- you start? it happened years earlier, uh, in South Africa. Uh, uh and I, I said to um, the BBC, Look, I've got an idea, why don't you give me a microphone? And a And a team on a steady cam, the people who walk backwards, giving you the pictures, and I will just walk down the pit lane and talk to whoever I see that I want to talk to, and it will be unprompted, and they they won 't be expecting me with one exception. I primed Joe Ramirez of McLaren that I was come to get to come to him, and I walk down the pit lane, and the last person I talked to as he leapt out of his car and cross, cross the track to come to the pit area was Tom Walkinshaw and it was brilliantly successful because this hadn't been done before where you, you were actually in the pit lane and you were actually talking not, not recorded but talking live to the people that the fans wanted to hear from and idolised was something entirely new uh, and then it sort of fizzled out somehow until Martin revived it and does it brilliantly well.
0: Martin revived it. Martin, if you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> it was, you learn everything from Murray. Now, Murray, believe it or not, China is the 1,000th race in Formula One history. So I thought it was perhaps a good, um, the, perhaps a rigorous thing to do would be just to ask you... Um, For a few of your favourites, so if I was to say during those one thousand races that go back to the first ever Grand Prix, thirteenth of May, nineteen fifty, Silverstone World Championship Grand Prix, in that time, favourite driver, Fangio. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Why Fangio ahead of a Senna or a Schumacher or a Jim Clark? Uh, uh,
1: Tom, people ask, say who's the who's the greatest? Uh, And I always say to them, look, I I can't answer that question because you can't compare drivers of one generation with drivers of another generation when they were driving different cars at different circuits to different rules. Um, You just have to make a subjective judgment uh, and... You can try to try to justify it, but if someone thinks passionately about someone else, it's very difficult to challenge them. Why Fangio? Well, uh, he was unique, and and he's still unique in that he uh, won five world championships, so four of them with different constructors, with Maserati, with Ferrari. Uh, with Mercedes-Benz and with Alfa Romeo. Now, admittedly, he did that because he was astute enough to know that he was the best and that he could therefore drive the best car and he therefore used to just have yearly contracts and uh, at the end of the year he would decide which, which constructor he was going to drive for next. Um, but he was a great person as well. It wasn't just that he was a great driver. He was a humble individual who'd come from very ordinary circumstances at Balcarce in Argentina, and he came across to Europe uh, and and conquered it in a four-CLT Maserati and then got all these works drives. Uh, And he was uh, absolutely supreme. The only person who really could hold a candle to him at that time was Sterling Moss the greatest driver never to have won the world championship, and much greater than a lot of the ones who did. Let's talk
0: about your personal relationships with drivers. I'm thinking Mansell. uh, I'm thinking Senna. I mean, can you just tell us,
1: in terms of your personal relationships, who you got on best with and why? uh, People seem to think, Tom, that people in your position and my position are continually hobnobbing, having lunch with, having dinner with, having drinks with, going on holiday with and generally being super duper friends with top drivers. You know that isn't the case. Uh, nowadays, you have to make an appointment about a fortnight before when you want to talk to a driver. Uh, in my day, it was a lot easier um, because Formula One wasn't as professional and wasn't as far-reaching and wasn't as big a worldwide sport as it is now. I've got a feeling I'm not answering your question, actually. No, you are. You are,
0: because oh. you're just explaining that perhaps you weren't as close to these drivers as the uh, precisely.
1: people perceived you to be. so. Um, but still, you had a relationship the, 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 with Nigel. The, 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 my big exception is I, I like to think that I was pretty close, if not very close, to most of the English drivers. Uh, particularly, my mate Nigel Mansell, uh, not the easiest person in the world to get on with, uh, for a lot of people. But I always found him extremely kind and helpful, and I've stayed stayed at his home in Florida when he lived there. I've stayed at his home in the Isle of Man when he lived there, uh, and we we came up through Formula One together. And he's a good old boy. He's a, he was. A, they called him a Leone in. Italy when he drove for Ferrari and Il Leone means the lion and it was a very good description of Nigel because he is and was lion-hearted and I got on extremely well with him. Uh, I got on extremely well with David Coulthard. Was Nigel a generous
0: man? Because some of the people he's worked with say that he was very hard work. I'm talking team people. Your experiences of him, was was he... Was he a a charming man over a dinner table or
1: how did you find him on a personal one-to-one basis? Well, on a personal one-to-one basis, I caught on with him extremely well. But you have to bear in mind that with all of these people, Tom, I was representing the BBC and the BBC was mighty important and still is mighty important. Uh, and not many of them were going to be unpleasant to me but because of that, and irrespective of what we were like on a personal chemistry level. Uh, but quite apart from that, I got on with, but, but but Nigel is, well, sorry, was, and I don't suppose he's changed, uh, in many ways a difficult person to get on with. Uh, very thin-skinned, took offence very easily, did you ever criticise him? Get under that skin?
0: Um, I, I you can poke- only
1: remember one. Nigel, Nigel used to be very aware of what everything said to him. I think he had a network of friends and informers who came to said, do you know you read science, um, Nigel? And Nigel came up to me once and he said, uh, what's this you've been saying about me being boring? I said, uh, Nigel, would I say that you were you of all people were boring? Well, that's all I said. He said, so I mean that was the only. Uh, I, I, but I, I had, uh, I didn't. I was present at a, an occasion, two occasions with Nigel, uh, when we had a young, developing producer at the BBC, a called Ken Burton, very nice bloke. Um, and he was supervising an interview that Nigel and I were to do. And he gets the camera all lined up, and then he says to Nigel, Nigel, would you mind taking your cap off? And Nigel said, i paid a million pounds to wear this cap. No, I won't. So Ken Burton says to the cameraman, avoid the cap, avoid the cap. So we did the interview, and it was a back-to-back situation. The next weekend, we were at another Scornberry, and Ken Burton's got the cameras lined up, and he says to Nigel, I couldn't believe my eyes. ears Tom. Would you mind taking your cap off, Nigel? Oh, I can't believe it, says Nigel, and stormed off. I stormed off? Stormed gosh. off, yeah. And... Uh, so I gave it five minutes and I went to him. And I said, look, uh, Nigel, uh, I had a chat with him and uh, we came back and we did the interview. But I had a similar situation, or not dissimilar, with Damon Hill in his championship year when he was working unbelievably hard. He was doing six hours in the gym every day. And I sat down to do... Uh, an interview with him at Portugal. Uh, and he was looking very peaky, very thin. His cheeks were sunken and his eyes were looking haunted for want of a better description. And I said, Damon, are you all right? You're not overdoing it, are you? What do you say that for, he said. And stormed off. He stormed off. Oh, Damon. For, I for, so i um, gave him five minutes and then I said look Damon I've obviously offended you and I'm sorry I was perf- perfectly unintended he said it's all right Murray he said um, I'm okay now but he said just before you I had another chap interviewing me and he said what would you give to have your father back for just one hour Now, Damon's father was Graham Hill, double world champion, killed in an air crash, dramatically, adversely affected Damon's life. And to ask a question like that at the best of times would have been ill-judged, but in the nervous state that Damon was in with the world championship in the offing, it was lighting the blue touch paper and standing clear.
0: They're under so much pressure, these guys, aren't they? But, I mean, let's talk about, Damon, because, of course, I've got to stop because I've got a lump in my throat. Yeah. It's one of the sort of iconic lines of Murray Walker as he as he won the championship in Pe- Japan. Pe- people
1: accuse me, uh, Tom, of thinking of smart-ass things to say and writing them on the commentary box wall so that I could slot them into the commentary at the appropriate moment. Not true you're standing there with adrenaline pouring out of you. You're having to interpret the pictures that the viewer is looking at and you're looking at the same pictures as they are uh, so that they know more about and are hopefully interested and entertained in what they're seeing. Uh, And I was very much involved with Damon. I, I had been aware of him when he was racing motorcycles at Brands Hatch and became the Brands Hatch 350cc champion. Uh, And then through his mother, Betty, and to a lesser extent through his father, Graham, I was aware of him in his youth, and uh, then then he switched to cars. So when Graham was killed and the Hill family, Betty, the mother, and Damon, the son, and the two daughters, Bridget and Samantha... Uh, were cast into the wilderness because Graham Hill's insurance was invalidated for a variety of reasons and they were on very hard times. So I'd lived all through this aware of what had happened and when Damon crossed the line to win the world championship after losing it to Schumacher in dubious circumstances in 1994... It really did all well up inside me and quite spontaneously. I said, I've got to stop now. I've got a lump in my throat because I I had genuinely got a lump in my throat. Do you stay in touch with Damon now? I hear from him occasionally and see him occasionally, yes. Top man. Top man. Absolutely top man. Yeah, Yeah. I I second that. Decent, kind, humble, jolly good driver, good sense of humour. When he started doing his television work, he was one of two or three people and uh, basically uh, pundits. And um, I used to sit, sit watching the box and Damon was standing there, not really saying anything, but listening to the others. And I was saying to myself, get in there, Damon. You're, you're a pundit. You're supposed to be saying something. And of course now he's changed beyond recognition and he's, jolly good at taking the initiative and asking the right questions and genuinely being thoroughly entertaining from the point of view of someone who's not only been there and done that, but done it and become world champion.
0: For all, of course, Damon is intrinsically linked to Senna, Ayrton Senna. And Murray, one thing that always struck me is when circumstances got very difficult, a driver was killed, for example, you always said the right thing you got the tone right and I'm thinking specifically of ML in 94 when we lost Roland Ratzenberger and Ayrton Senna um just your memories of that weekend and how difficult it was to say the right thing.
1: Uh very difficult indeed Tom uh there again because I had been doing it as long as I had been doing it and because I was doing Formula 2 as well and Formula 3 and Formula Ford and all the other things. I used to catch these drivers right at the beginning of their careers. And I did with Elton Senna in 1982 when he was winning everything in Formula Ford. So I was been aware of his career and very much so and interviewed him umpteen times and uh, I'm going to be slightly long-winded. Does that matter from the point of view? We have plenty. The microphone's yours. uh, In in the winter of 1993, uh, I had got out some tapes I have done of the iconic year 1983 in Formula 3, when Senna and Martin Brundle were battling for the title. Senna won it, but Martin won a lot of the races and only just failed to win it himself. Uh, and I, re- I realised I, at that time I had been talking about Ayrton Senna. And I had become sloppy like a lot of people and was now calling him Ayrton Senna. So I resolved in 1994 that I would use his correct pronunciation of his Christian name. So in the first race of the year, which was uh, Aida in Japan, if I remember correctly. Uh, that was the
0: second. No, first race was Interlagos, I think. Sorry, the first yeah.
1: race was Interlagos. Home race that's right. for Senna, yeah. Uh, and Senna spun out and Schumacher won. The second race was at Aida and... Um, Senna got turfed off by the Mahakkanen or Lorini, I can't remember which it was. Uh, and um, so we're now at San Marino, the first European race. And I sat down with Senna and said, um, Well, uh, well, Ayrton, I said, um, two races down, you haven't got any points. Schumacher's got 20. What's to do? What happened to Ayrton, he said. <laughs> he <say> <laughs> I said, how, how on earth do you know about that? You're in the car when I'm talking. Oh, he said, I keep in touch, Murray. And and that was a typical example of how Senna had got his finger in every pie right up to the hilt and uh, knew a, lot, a hell of a lot of what was going on. Now... Is Senna the greatest of all time? Not to me, he's not. A brilliant, charismatic, superb person in so many ways, but so utterly determined to win, do what may and cost what it may, that he did some highly reputable things, like crowding prostitutes Similar, like taking Prost off in Japan, um, and uh, I don't know. Overste-
0: you think he overstepped them up? I, really I mean, on those occasions, he did. He did overstep them up.
1: What he did in Japan was absolutely outrageous. Yeah. Did you say that, to him? Did you uh, ever say that, to him? N- no, I didn't. But 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 uh, in in Australia, um, the end of the season it was then. Uh, Jackie Stewart was doing an interview with Senna before one before me, and Jackie was absolutely brilliant. He just took Senna apart, uh, and Senna lost his temper with him.
0: Is that when Senna said he called him? Didn't call him Jackie. He said Stuart Yes, Stewart. If well, you don't go for a gap, you are no longer a racing driver. Is that is that's that's that the, that's yeah, the
1: interview, with Jackie? That, yeah. That's it. That's it. Um, so I, I then had to follow Jackie Stewart, who did it immeasurably better than I would have done anyway, with an outraged sinner. But um, he'd similar, and I to, to, to be perfectly honest with you, I hadn't got the guts to, to to do it a second time. So the answer is no. But it was. Now, don't use the word tragedy. The BBC say. Senna's death at Imola was a tragedy, um, as you've pointed out. We <coughs> we we had Rubens Barrichello having a nigh unto death crash on the Friday. We had Roland Ratzenberger being killed on Saturday, uh, and um, so um, when. The race started at, um, at Imola, at San Marino. <coughs> and um, I just tried to remember who it was that went into the back of J.J. Leto. Martini? Pedro Lamy, maybe? Pardon? Was it Pedro Lamy? Yes, it was Pedro Lamy, that's at right. The yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, at the start. Yeah, uh, yeah. At the start, as a result of which, the safety car came out. Now, with all the wisdom of hindsight, they should have stopped the race, not bring the safety car out. And the safety car in those days was not a specially souped up Mercedes-Benz driven by a highly talented driver as it is now. It was whatever was around, like a Fiat Punto, um, driven by somebody who got some talent, but Uh, the Formula One cars were trundling round for several laps while they cleared up the debris, and um, as a result of which, the tyre temperatures went down, Uh, as a result of which, the ride height went down of the cars. They were closer to the ground. Uh, When the race started again with uh, Schumacher and Senna vying for the lead Uh, Senna Senna went off and my first reaction Tom was wow that's a big one which sounds pretty casual but I I said that because I had seen on other years at exactly the same corner the Tamburello um, Michele Alboreto go off and was alright Nelson Pico go off hurt his foot, but he was all right. Gerhard Berger, not only go off, but to be in the car with it on fire. And I was thinking, I'm talking about someone who's been done to a crisp before our very eyes. Uh, They got him out. So my first instinctive reaction, I think, was uh, it hasn't been too bad in the past. It probably won't be too bad now. But then I rapidly realised when... Professor Sid Watkins, the, the FIA's medical chap, who was absolutely brilliant, came out. The race was stopped. The body language was very ominous, uh, and I didn't know what was happening because I was in the commentary box, and there wasn't anybody to tell me. I had pictures from Rai, the Italian television company, coming into the box, but which were not the, not the nicest and wouldn't have been shown by the BBC. But literally for the first time, the BBC had got its own camera unit there. So Mark Wilkin, the producer, was able to cut away to less uh, worrying pictures. Uh, but I had to walk the tightrope between... Don't worry, folks. It'll be all right. I've seen three others go off at the same point, and they were perfectly all right. He'll soon be back. And oh dear, I I fear this is terminal. You don't say that sort of thing. Uh, somehow or other, you have to find the words to uh, walk that tight rope between the two. Uh, and then he was taken away in the helicopter, and the race was started. But um, the atmosphere of gloom and misery at what many people regard as the greatest driver of all time, almost certainly being about to die and subsequently doing so, uh, was immeasurable.
0: Let's, um, let's move on to some other topics now, I think. Um, Favourite race over these, your career? Australia.
1: Australia. <laughs> oh, I love Australia. <laughs> yeah. Adelaide or Melbourne? Uh, Adelaide, actually. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's difficult to put a cigarette paper between them, but Adelaide is smaller. Uh, I'm not going to say friendlier because Melbourne was very friendly too. Uh, but it was it was different, the different the indefinable difference between the Formula One race being everything to Adelaide. And the the Formula One race subconsciously being another major sporting confrontation uh, in Melbourne with tennis and lots of other things yep. against it. Um, but either venue was absolutely brilliant. And I love the Australians. I love the country. I love the food. I love the whole attitude both. about the place. My wife who lived there and was educated there says it's all very well for you because you've only been there when you, you have been the chap that talked to them about the Formula One that they were passionately interested in and they made a gigantic fuss of you. You haven't been there in an Australian summer when the temperatures are 45 degrees and not at all pleasant. And she was perfectly right. Mm. But uh, who cares? I mean, I, I, I still think <laughs> it's fabulous. Is there a
0: favourite season that you you reflect on, where, the, the uh, racing you eight, enjoyed eight, the most? Eight,
1: 82, it's got to be 82. Um, no, just a minute, it hasn't got to be 82. 76 takes a uh, hell of a lot of beating. Hey, James. Uh, was, 76 was the James Hunt year, of course. Um, when... Uh, he won in Spain and then got disqualified because the rear wing was an eighth of an inch or something too wide. Uh, and then, Murray, he, your memory is pin sharp. It's, it's he, you're he, 95
0: he, years old and you can <laughs> remember all these things like it was yesterday.
1: And then he won. He won. Won the British Grand Prix after it had been stopped, and the crowd made such a fuss hunt, hunt, that hunt, they had hunt, to restart hunt. the race or yeah. risk a riot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was doing the BBC radio uh, pit lane uh, interviewing and James came rushing past me on his way from getting out of the car back to the pits and I tried to stop him to do an interview very stupid thing to do actually and he says there's a race on old boy there's a race on (laughs) and got got in, got in the refixed car that um, Alistair Cordwell and his mates at Marlborough had uh, managed to do while keeping the FIA officials occupied by making protests and generally being difficult to give themselves time. Uh, and then James won the British Grand Prix, only to have that disallowed. And then you had the Nicky Lauda... Uh, crash at the Nürburgring, which ended uh, his career with Ferrari and very nearly ended his life. And finally, you had the incredible situation at Monza. No, not finally, almost, but finally. Well, Lauda came back almost literally from the dead and finished well in the points in a blood-soaked, blood-soaked crash helmet. Uh, and then drove in the race who was going to decide the championship, the last race of the year in Japan at Fuji. Uh, The weather conditions were so appalling that he had the guts, the courage, to to pull out of the race and say, my life matters more than the championship. Uh, and, And James won. And it was another dramatic situation where he got a puncture and had to come in. Anyway... 1976 was a hell of a year, uh, but then, then... And as you said
0: earlier, Murray, it seems that 76 was so integral in, in persuading the BBC to take the sport. Yeah, the it, was, it was because
1: so it, was, of, it was pivotal it, in so many ways. It was because it, it was such a wonderful year, and because it was James and because he was British, uh, the the public suddenly became aware of Formula One, really aware of Formula One, Um And the BBC started to televise it. And it was because the BBC started to televise it that Formula One became as popular worldwide as it did, as it has.
0: I'm interested that when I posed that question, you immediately came back and said, 82. Of course, Keké Rosberg's championship, but tragedy as well with Gilles Villeneuve's death and Didier Peroni as well having a bad accident in the Ferrari. What was it about 82 that stood out?
1: Um... Monaco uh, when um, we had I think four different drivers leading in the last couple of laps because first of all Alain Prost was leading uh, and crashed out Uh, then his place was taken by Riccardo Patrese in the closing stage and I mean the last lap but one Riccardo Patrese in the Brabham who lost it on the way down to the hairpin. Uh, and then Didier Pironi took over in the Ferrari, only to, I can't remember whether it was a petrol starvation or an electrical fall, but he, his, his car stopped in the tunnel. Uh, so briefly, believe it or not, Andrew de Cesaris was in the lead. Uh, and, and then he, he retired Uh, The race that no one wanted to win. Wonder of wonder. Derek Daly in the Williams uh, is now leading. uh, And and, uh, he lost a rear wing at the Rascass, I think. Uh, And meantime, Riccardo Patrese had regained and won the race. And there's never been a race like that before. It was extraordinary. Definitely. Now, the favourite race you said
0: was Adelaide. But what about a favourite circuit?
1: Favourite circuit, I think, uh, I'm hard put, but I think it has to be Spa, partly for personal emotional reasons. My father raced in the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa with great success, and that was at a time, of course, when it was the really long circuit, not the shorter one that they have now for safety reasons. Uh, but Spa in the Ardennes is still, even though it's been shortened, a a brilliant circuit, Uh, almost a public road circuit Uh, in glorious surroundings. The Belgians have the best food in Europe. Uh, Chips. (laughs) And it's almost invariably a a thumping good race. I mean, it's, it's the race that Damon Hill won for jordan to prove that he could win a race in more than one for for, for more than one constructor although he, he damn nearly won for arrows uh won there for williams as well do you remember didn't you weren't you in the
0: Ardennes in the war as well
1: yes uh i was um i was in a tank regiment as i think i said earlier on and um uh, yeah, uh, the it was the Battle of the Bulge uh, where Hitler's last despairing throw was to chuck the whole of the weight of the Western Wehrmacht against uh Britain and try to try to get through to the Channel coast as they had done in Dunkirk years earlier, uh, and uh. I was, we were a reserve regiment waiting to go in, but the Americans did an absolutely brilliant job. There was a general called, uh, General McAuliffe, Nuts McAuliffe, they used to use him because they they thought he was nuts. Uh, And the Germans had him in an impossible situation and they demanded his his, uh, retirement. Uh, surrender, sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. Nuts, he said. Uh, and uh, the, the Americans brought managed to bring up reinforcements and won, and that was basically the end of the beginning as far as Hitler and the German Wehrmacht were concerned on the Western Front.
0: And that was all around near Spa.
1: From then on, we, um, we broke through, and uh, I had. Uh, Uh, An absolutely unbelievable experience of driving across Germany, chasing the retreating German army and being instructed by the 21st Army Group. We were the lead regiment of the British Army and we had instructions to get to Lübeck before the Russians because Lübeck on the uh, east coast of the Schleswig-Holstein Peninsula uh, controlled the access to Denmark, Finland, Sweden, and Norway, and whoever got there first was going to be in a strong position. Uh, we got we we did an 80 mile march in the last day, which in a tank is unbelievable. Uh, and um, we linked up with the Russians. We were the first British first British unit in the regi- in the army to do so, and the first Russians we saw were three of them, on a German captured BMW motorcycle outfit with a a squaddy at the handlebars, an officer on the pillion, and a a Russian woman soldier in the sidecar. And we did all the fraternizing bit, thumbs up. And and they were saying, Lubeck, Lubeck. And we were saying, we're in Lubeck, mate. We're, (laughs) We're there first. Up yours,
0: <laughs> and you, and you like that. How funny that it was a motorcycle as well. Your yeah. first passion yeah. as well. Yeah. Keeps coming back to that, doesn't it? Um, final thoughts, just on, on sort of the big picture of Formula One. Is there a favourite team that you you've enjoyed watching, fraternising with people you knew, people you respected? Is, is there a favourite team?
1: Uh, yes. Williams and um, what a romantic story that is hopefully not with a sad ending uh, but I saw Williams from when Frank Williams and Piers Courage were a one car team and then uh, Frank went, went with the Tommaso And subsequently founded his own team, got Patrick Head aboard, built this incredible organisation as a private owner that won so many world championships for drivers and constructors. uh, Only to fall on the hard times that they're in now. And I hope and pray that they're going to be able to fight their way out of it. But it's going to be terribly difficult against... The moneyed might of Mercedes-Benz and Ferrari and Red Bull and, to a lesser extent, Renault and even some of the others. But there have been some wonderful times. Nigel Mansell, Nelson Piquet, Keke Rosberg, uh, David Coulthard and all, all the rest of them driving for Williams, not the least of whom, of course, was out in the centre. Damon Hill. So that's my answer. Williams and uh, God be with them and I hope they manage to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. What does the next
0: thousand races hold for Formula One? What would you like, which direction would you like to
1: see the sport? It's going sport to change, in? Tom. I'm not sure about in what direction it's going to change because when I started, the driver had the engine in front of him. and He was wearing... Cotton overalls and a skull cap. Uh, there were no runoff areas, there was no Armco. The medical facilities were minimal, uh, and the whole of the top half of the driver stuck out of the top of the car. Uh, look at it now. They drive around in safety cells with lots of Armco, with runoff areas, with brilliant medical facilities, with halos and all the rest of it, thank heavens. Uh, now, the first question is is it still going to be an internal combustion engine or is it going to be electricity? I find it very difficult to generate any enthusiasm about Formula E, to be honest, because part of the great part of the attraction of Formula One is the noise. And uh, to hear something whining past you is not the same as appearing a full-blooded V12 or even, as they are now, a turbocharged engine. So it's going to change and and, uh, I don't know in what direction it's going to change, whether it will continue as some sort of internal combustion formula uh, or whether it will become electrical. Uh, If it becomes electrical, I think I have lived through the best of it.
0: Well, Murray, what a fascinating chat. Thank you very much. What, a, what an eclectic and amazing life you've lived.
1: Nice to talk to you, Tom, and if I may uh, return the praise, I remember vividly when in my ham-fisted uh, unfamiliarity with modern digital techniques, I used to write write my race stories and because I was incompetent enough to send them back to HQ electronically, you used to type them up for me and send them through and I have never, ever forgotten that and I have forever been grateful to you. Thank you very much. Well, Murray, that's very kind. My typing is really not that good. <laughs> it was good enough. <laughs>
0: Murray, we've had a lot of fun over the years. Um, now, I thought... Just as an out, for for the young'uns listening to this, they have missed out by not listening to you call the start of a race. Is there any chance, just as we leave this podcast, you could say, and it's over to you, Murray.
1: So watch the lights. It's five lights, four lights, three lights, two lights, one light. Go, go, go.